Well, good morning, church. Or I guess I should say half a day. Wow, that sounds really, really good. Faith and I and our whole family are so honored by the warm reception that you've given us. It's been a remarkable thing to us to watch the ways that God's been leading in this process and uh, we are anxious to share with you over the next few days some of the things that God's doing in our lives and continuing to seek the Lord along with you about his direction for the future. I thought that I might share with you uh, by um, filling in for you some of the details about us that you would not have seen in our information packet. So we're going to start off with this. This is sort of a top five, all right? Important things about us that you may not find anywhere else. Um, Number six on this list. Yes, you may have heard correctly. The Walton family are Vikings fans. I'm sorry, yeah. Our family uh, uh, lives in Michigan now, but we spent 24 years in Minnesota. And... um, Over that time, we became uh, Vikings fans and Twins fans and Timberwolves and the University of Minnesota Gophers fans, and they never win anything. Um, But yes, number six, we are Vikings fans. Uh, Number two, this is, I thought this would be an interesting thing for you. I don't LOL. Now, it's not that I don't laugh out loud. I, I do laugh out loud, but as far as I know, I have never written typed, or texted the the letters L-O-L. So I'm not against any of you that are L-O-Lers. I mean, it seems like there's sort of two kinds of people in the world, those that are and those that aren't, but I'm one of those that aren't, Um, so I thought I'd let you know that. Actually, this is sort of interesting. We have, uh, I have a buddy in our church back home, an older gentleman that sends me texts every once in a while and, and little emails And at the end of of many of these texts, he signs them um, LOL and then his name. I think he he thinks they mean lots of love. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. But every time I read LOL and his name, I laugh out loud. (laughs) So I I may um, begin signing my name like that, LOL Gary. Uh, Number four... I don't know how well you can see this picture, but I have probably known Pastor Heron longer than anybody else in this room. This snapshot is out of a yearbook of Northland Baptist Bible College back in the day, Um, and that's that's Pastor Heron on the left, me on the right. Um, I actually met Pastor and Mrs. Heron when I was still in high school. I volunteered at camp at... uh, that uh, Pastor Heron was the director at up at Northland, and so we know and love the Herons. This is actually a picture of, this is a very important thing in my college years. Um, This is a intramural championship game. And in fact, you maybe can't see it, but Pastor Heron's wearing a Lakers hat. That doesn't surprise you. And uh, our team was the Celtics, and we met in the championship of the world uh, for intramurals, and so that picture was snapped. So... um, our family loves the Herons, and uh, I, I know, I've known them a long time. I, I have not known them 
in the ways that you have. Pastor Aaron hasn't been my pastor, and um, there is a very special relationship that happens with a pastor and a church, and so I don't have that privilege. I'm envious of you all for uh, that privilege, but I've known the Herons, Faith and I have both. We've known the Herons as mentors and counselors and friends over the years, and um, uh, I, I can hardly explain to you how honored we are this morning um, to be here for many reasons, but one of them is just because of our great respect for Pastor and Mrs. Heron. Number three, um, I heard that you can find out a lot about a person by the vehicle that they drive. So uh, this is a 2001 um, Chevy Suburban that now has 309,000 miles on it. Can you get 309,000 miles on a car in Guam? 309,000 miles on it, and it is still going strong. Um, this car has been through five children, one dog, uh, lots of snow, and uh, I would be sad to leave it. Um, we all, my wife also has a newer Mazda that she lets me drive every once in a while, but uh, if you want to know about me, this is it, Chevy Suburban. Number two, does anybody know what this is? This is the symbol of Michigan in the way that this is the symbol of Guam. <laughs> I would tell you that my, uh, what did you say, Pastor Ken, Zori's? Uh, Flip-flops. My Zori game is, uh, it's not so good. I'm working on it. But I'm telling you, my snow shovel game is really good. And this shovel, you may notice this, this shovel I purchased in 1996. 22 years old, and it just keeps moving. This has shoveled a lot of snow. And in fact, in the last 22 years, it's created a family. <laughs> and this is one of uh, our primary um, parenting tools right here. So this is our family, um, five, uh, five children plus uh, our, our daughter-in-law and Reggie the dog are right in that picture. This was just taken this last Christmas, lots of snow, um, and uh, so anyhow, I wanted you to let you know about my friend, the snow shovel, that I will not feel bad at leaving at all. And then this picture um, leads us to the number one top five thing, top six, I guess, thing that you may not have heard in other places. I hope that you have heard this. But, um, oops, I lost it. Um, I love these people fiercely. Yeah, fiercely. Um, I'm so thankful for the family that uh, God has given me. This is our family. My son, Matt's our oldest. Matt and his wife, Bryn, are the only ones that are not here. I should make them all stand, but we'll just put their picture up on there anyway. Matt and Bryn are on the left. Of course, Faith and I. And then uh, Amanda, Tyler, Kara, and Emily. And um, I'm so thankful. You know, God's grace, any family here that has had any blessings, it is because of the grace of God. Isn't that right? And uh, faith in my story is absolutely, there's nothing more to it than the grace of God. 
And uh, we're thankful for God's gift to us of these beautiful children and the privilege that I have uh, during these days that we have of introducing them to you in some ways. And uh, we're looking forward as a family to getting to know you and, as I said before, just seeking God's will. Thank you for the opportunity for us to be here. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads uh, with me, and we're going to pray. Father, I would ask this morning that you would be with us in a way that your name would be lifted up and your word would be lifted up in, in a powerful way. There's a lot of things going on this morning, and our minds are full, at least mine is, of, of many things, many good things, and we have questions and uh, just a lot, of th- a lot of things. And today, this morning, for this time, I believe that you have brought every single individual here for a reason. There's no coincidences in any person that's here. And uh, we believe that um, you've drawn us together for these moments that we're going to look into your word in order for your word to teach us and to challenge us and, and to change us. And so, Father, we'd ask that our ears would be open. I pray that you'd help to break our wills. I'd ask that you destroy our pride that keeps us from following hard after you. I'd ask that you'd remove our fear, the things that would stop us from serving you wholeheartedly. And by the power of your Spirit this morning, would you use your word to transform and change and help us to be more like your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 8. We're going to spend the next few minutes doing what I think you normally do here at Harvest. We're going to go to the Bible and study together what the Bible has to say. And I'm excited about the topic and the text that we're going to look at this morning. It really ties in with what I think is one of the big important themes in the Scriptures. And and what it does and what it means for a Christian to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. What's it going to take for you and for me to be a committed follower of Jesus? And I want to just grab a hold this morning of three principles that have to guide our life philosophy and our philosophy of life. I think that you may have received an outline as you came in. Uh, There'll be a few points up on the screen, but um, I don't know if you normally take notes, but I'd encourage you at least track along with that outline as we work through this text and and discover together what God has to say about this very important topic of discipleship and what God is asking of us. We're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 8, and what we'll do this morning is just read uh, a verse at a time and then talk about it, okay? Outline it together and see if we can together see and understand what the scriptures are saying to us this morning. And when he, Jesus, had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So I told you that we're going to look at 
three principles that that have to guide our life philosophy. And the first one comes right out of this verse 34, and I'm going to say it this way. That is that genuine discipleship allows for no negotiation. It is nothing less than a complete exchange of everything that we have for all that he is. I think that's what verse 34 is telling us. And it means that we give our lives to God with no strings attached. There's no place for us to say, God, I'll give you my life except for this part of it. I was talking to one of the guys in our church uh, at one time. He was a career military uh, guy, and, and we were talking about what it means to totally surrender your life to God and the difference between commitment and surrender. And he said something that was very interesting. I've never forgot it. Um, he said something to this effect. He said, in the military, uh, they did a lot of volunteering, and he showed it to me with one hand in the air. Um, he said, Sometimes our volunteering wasn't really volunteering. We were sort of volunteered, but it's still what's called volunteering. And so in the military, we did a lot of volunteering. This was a good thing. But surrender, two hands in the air, that was never a good thing. He said there's a difference between volunteering, one hand in the air, and this idea of surrender. And so when he and I were talking about the fact that God wanted him to surrender or sacrifice his life at the core of who he was, his background, his training, really fought against this idea of, of surrender. And I thought it was interesting. I think it's, uh, as Christians, it's a lot easier for us to make commitments or to volunteer uh, because when I make a commitment, I'm still in charge. Does that make sense? If you ask me to do something and I raise my hand to volunteer, I'm saying I, I want to do this, but I can also keep my hand down. I'm in charge. But if I surrender in some way to you or to some person or some place, it means I'm no longer in charge. Whatever you say, I do. It's two hands in the air, this picture of surrender. After that conversation, I was doing some thinking and some teaching on this idea of surrender, and uh, we began to define surrender with these terms, and I've uh, said this over and over, really for myself as much as anything, but um, I want you to hear it uh, here this morning. This definition of surrender, it's not a technical de uh, dictionary definition, but I think it's a practical definition. And surrender means this, Lord, I give you my life, all my life. Nothing held back, nothing saved. I lay my life on the altar of unconditional surrender of all that I have and all that I am to you. You know, in my experience personally, in my experience of talking with a lot of believers, I believe God asks us this question over and over again. We have to continue to repeat it daily, sometimes many times in the day, Lord, I surrender. I give you my life, all my life, nothing held back, nothing saved. I lay my life in the altar of unconditional, whatever you ask, all that I have and all that I am to you. I think this is the way Jesus said it in verse 34. He says, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to take. Here's the terms. And he lists these three things. I'll mention them to you here real quick. Number one, first he says that you must deny yourself. By the way, if you want to look up here just for a minute, I, I want to make sure this is very clear. 
there is a difference between uh, self-denial and denying self. We practice self-denial when, for a good purpose, we give up things or give up activities. And quite frankly, anyone with a little bit of discipline can do this. Uh, maybe there's a, an athletic team that, that gives up pop or soda for the season. That's, that's self-discipline. Uh, maybe as a family, you're going to uh, want to go on a vacation a little bit later in the year, and you're going to have to save some money, and so you give up going to uh, Chick-fil-A. Is there Chick-fil-A in Guam? No? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was a bad thing to say, wasn't it? <laughs> so you give up Wendy's, so that I meant to say. So anybody with a little bit of discipline, a family with the discipline says, okay, you know, we're not going to go out to eat for this period of time. We're going to save the money that we would use for that in order for our family to go on vacation. All right, so that's self-discipline. And that's, uh, that's self-denial. And that is different than denying self. Denying self is a whole different ball game. It is giving up the right to, to uh, control my life. I'm no longer in charge. I'm no longer the one who raises my hand or puts it down. It is a total surrender. And it's saying to me and to my desires and my interests, it's saying, no, it's not about what I want. So Jesus says that we are going to have to deny yourself. Number two, he says we're going to take up our cross. And this isn't talking about uh, certain burdens or hardships that you have to bear uh, you maybe have defined uh, this type of taking up your cross in this way. You might have heard it like this. Well, that is the cross that I have to bear. And I want to tell you this morning, I don't think this is what it's talking about. When a person in the first century saw a person carrying a cross, they knew what that meant. They were on their way to die. And so when Jesus gives us this picture a uh, very vivid picture of a man who's taking up their cross, what he is describing for us is a, is a picture of the submission of a condemned man who is forced to demonstrate his allegiance or his submission to Rome by carrying his cross through the city to his place of execution. It is a public demonstration of your submission and obedience to the authority against which you had previously rebelled. Let me repeat that because I think it's important. It is a public demonstration of your submission and obedience to the authority against which you had previously rebelled. When Jesus says, and he calls you as a believer, to take up your cross, he is asking you to submit to the one that up to this point that you had spent your life rebelling against. The point is that it's all or nothing. These are all decisive words. Jesus is saying, here's the terms. This is what it's going to take. You can either take it or leave it, but there will be no negotiation. They're all very decisive terms. The problem with this is that, uh, you know, we are negotiators, aren't we? Anybody here want to admit to the idea that you're a negotiator, or is that just me? God says, I want your life, 
And we say, well, let's make a deal here. Okay, God, I'll give you my life, um, but we got to talk about a few things on, you know, on this part of it. I got a deal for you, God. I'll agree to this discipleship thing, but I want to talk about just a couple of exception clauses. I'm willing to be your child, um, but I'm not okay with this thing that you're asking of me, right? We're negotiators. But you know, the thing is that um, I'm not sure that we're sometimes ready to accept what Christ is asking of us. This is such a big deal for us because um, as long as I can negotiate, then I remain in charge. I can still be the one who sets the terms, but that's exactly, I think, what verse 34 is talking about. Denying self or taking up your cross is all about submission and the control of your life. And we want to be in control. That's the reason parents, when, uh, when you tell little Johnny, you know, Johnny's got his hands up on a counter or something, and you say, Johnny, I want you to take your hand off the counter. Johnny says this, and then he goes, Johnny, why you got one finger on the counter? What, right? We respond this way because of this idea that we want, at some place deep within us, we want the ability to control and make our own choices. We don't want somebody else telling us what to do. Uh, one of our children, I'm going to withhold the name to protect the innocent, or not so innocent, but one of our children was a skilled negotiator. And uh, the problem with that is that in our house, we had a no-negotiation policy, which is a pretty good policy. By the way, I don't mean, uh, it doesn't mean that they can't appeal. Our children are able to appeal decisions, but there wasn't a negotiation taking place. Now, listen, we did not teach this to this child. She, well, she. <laughs> she came by it very naturally. I think she got it from her mother. No, I'm just kidding about that. So uh, Faith or I would give a set of instructions to this child. We want you to go clean up your room and to make your bed. And this child would say, now, Dad, you know, we've got a pretty good thing going here, right? Don't we? And I am willing to go clean up my room and make my bed. But in turn, would you be willing to? And I'm like, no. No negotiation. But the truth is that we all have that tendency, don't we? God wants from us this total commitment. He wants us to be wholehearted and sold out. You know, it seems to me like the Christian life is one big yes, followed by a whole bunch of little uh-huhs. See if this makes sense to you. The big yes is when we by faith give our lives to God and we tell him that, that we want him to be our leader and, and we'll go where he wants and we'll do what he wants and there will be no turning back. I mean, for the believer, there has to be a point where we say that. That's the big yes. But the fact is that when we give God this big yes, we have no idea what that means. We really don't. And so for the rest of our lives, 
We have lots of decisions that we have to make. And God says, you gave me your life, and here's what I want you to do. And we have to respond at that time with, "Uh uh-huh, I will. You go to church, and the the scriptures are opened up, and, and a teacher in a class says something that you know God's challenging you about. It's a step of obedience. It's the next step in your faith. And you say, well, I already said yes, but at that time, we have to say again, "Uh uh-huh. And our life is filled with this, "Uh uh-huh, God, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God. We have to move on, but before I leave this point, uh, I want to stop here just for a minute. I want to be very specific. There are some here, I would guess, and you have been trying to negotiate with God over some area of your life, and you know it. And for some time, weeks, months, maybe it's been years, God has been working you over, and I want to make it very clear, as clear as I can this morning, that God will not accept any negotiation. And you're going to be as miserable as you can be until at some point you say to God, okay, Okay, Lord, I surrender. Whatever you say, whatever you're asking, yes, I'll do it. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Number three, I'll just mention this. He says, follow me, this kind of radical discipleship. And if I can have you add into your notes this number four, I would just write in no turning back. And I think that's the idea. If you, whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. And I would say, and there's no turning back, no strings attached. In fact, uh, these words of Jesus disrupt our natural tendency. I outlined it this way. I don't know if you'll want to fill this in. I think I've got it up on the screen. But this, this idea that God's Uh, disrupting, Jesus is disrupting our natural tendency to be what you want to be. He says, deny self. To do what you want to do, he says, to take up your cross. To go where you want to go, he says, to follow me. That's what Jesus is asking. And he's disrupting for every one of us our natural tendencies to be what we want to be, to do what we want to do, to go where you want to go. And the reason that we fight against this is about this control issue. We fight about who's in charge of my life. Who's going to drive? I've talked about this many times with new believers and young Christians. You know, I think for most people in our lives, when we come to Christ and we make commitments of, of our lives to Christ, we have this idea that we want God to be a part of our life, and that's why we ask Him to join. And it's sort of like you're, you're driving a vehicle. And uh, we'd like... God to be in the vehicle with us. And we'll invite him to be in the passenger seat, but we have a very difficult time with asking him to drive. When he's in the passenger seat, then he's a counselor for us, and everybody would like God as a counselor. And sometimes if we get a little bit tired of the counsel that God's giving us, that we we might you know, push another passenger into the passenger seat and we'll send him to the back seat. And sometimes we get tired of the things that God's telling us in the back seat. And I know some, some Christians who, 
they really wanted God but in their life, but eventually they kind of put him in the trunk. And I'm telling you, God will not, will not, a holy God will not accept that kind of a relationship. Our God is asking and demanding that he would be the driver of our car. And the only way that we submit is saying to God, I want you here and you are the driver. I will follow along with you. I think that's what Jesus says. Let's keep reading in verse 35. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Like you write in in your notes, number two, principle number two is this. Once you have spent your life and it's over, you can't ever buy it back. You ought to let these verses, verses 35, 36, and 37, just sit and roll around in your mind this week. They are so powerful. For whosoever, verse 35 says, will will lose his life. Whosoever will save his life. In my Bible, I have uh, the word saved circled, and I've got an arrow drawn to the word I wrote in the margin. I wrote in the word protect. To me, that helps me a lot in understanding this. Jesus is saying, if your goal is to save your life, if your goal is to protect your life, if your goal is to protect your dreams, if your goal is to protect your security, if your goal in life is to protect your financial situation, whatever it is, you just fill it in, the things that are important to you. Jesus said, if this is your goal in life, to save your life, to protect your life, and you're going to lose it. Verse 36, verse 37 says, we find Jesus asking these, these tough questions, these cut-to-the-heart questions that make it very, very clear that once you have spent your life, you can't ever buy it back. There's no more time. you got one opportunity in this life, and then it's done. You know, for some of you here, you're here and you're, you're weighing the decision of becoming a Christian. And I want you to grab onto these questions this morning. I mean, here's the choice. And Jesus himself, this is not me, this is Jesus himself saying in his word to you, if you're here and you're, you're really weighing this idea of Christianity and God's call in your life, and Jesus says this to you, he says, go ahead and compare. You take everything that this world has to offer, every pleasure, every thrill, money, prestige, success, and you take it all for 20 years and 30 years or or your whole life, 60, 70, 80 years. You take it all, but for the lifetime of everything that this world has to offer, you have to trade your soul. You have to trade eternity. Jesus is saying, is it worth it? For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Some of you this morning, you're believers, you're Christians here, many of you. But you've been sort of 
If you're honest with yourself, if you're honest with God, you've been just sort of muddling through, muddling along. I like to use the word settling. Settling in your Christian life. And this morning, I want to lay before you the greatest life ever. Jesus called it, I have come to bring you life and to bring this abundant life. Jesus is talking about this change of perspective, this change of vision. I mean, that's the wording. He said you can gain the whole world, this sort of temporary perspective, and you lose your soul, this eternal perspective. And he's saying, I want you, I want you to set your sight, set your perspectives on the things that really matter. If your goal in life is to save this life, to protect it, to guard it, then you're going to lose. Jesus is, is using a paradox, right? A paradox is a, is a word picture that describes something that seems contradictory, but when we think about it, it really drives home the point. If your life, if your goal is all about saving your life, he says you're going to lose it. But if you really want a life that is full of joy and abundance, if you really want that life, then give up yours. and Give it up. Lay it on the altar. Submit it. I played a little baseball when I was in high school. And the thing that really bothered me about baseball is that it seems like you had so few opportunities to influence the game. Couple, uh, the, the game of baseball was sort of a, a lot of preparation and then a lot of standing and waiting for those few opportunities. Unless you're the pitcher or the catcher, and I wasn't those, I, I had these times where you're waiting, you'd have a few opportunities in the field and then a few opportunities at bat, three, four at bats. And through the course of the game, you, you just had a few swings, if I can use it that way. You just had a few swings throughout the course of the game to try to influence the, the, the end of it, to influence the game and the outcome of the game. And I'm telling you, life is like this. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if I can use this baseball analogy, he's saying, man, you've only got a few swings in life. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your name is. I think Jesus is pointing at us and says, man, you only have a few swings in life. I don't think I understood this when I was 20 and 30. But, you know, when I hit my 40s, I started to get this. And I started to realize this idea that, um, you know, there are only so many opportunities in this life. I've only got so many swings in this game. And by God's grace, I, I want to do, uh, I'm asking God to help me to take advantage of every opportunity it, that I have in this life in order to impact eternity because really nothing else matters. And I'll tell you that this is one of the things that God's used in our lives and faith in my lives over the last few years 
to guide us and, and, and uh, direct us. And, and it's part of God's work in our lives now, even as we're talking to Harvest about the future of Harvest Ministries. Really, you guys already know this. There's a reason why you're invested here at Harvest, because you're saying, I think, at least some of you, I think you're saying that this is a place where I can throw my gifts, my abilities into this place where there's great impact for eternity. One of the great passions and great burdens of my life is that my kids and my family, that I would provide such an example to them of a, of a set of life priorities that they, that they would see and would not waste their life on what one person called fatal success. Have you ever heard that term? Fatal success is success that's all about comfort and, and a good job with a good spouse and a couple of good kids and a, and a nice house, plans for retirement. I call that being a good citizen. I've, Faith and I have talked about this. We've talked about it in our ministries. We're not interested in, in raising good citizens. I mean, I'm not against good citizens, but I want their lives to count for something great, to have eternal significance. I do not want them to coast through life. I don't want them to settle in life, looking for security. I, I want them in some ways to be risk-takers who will have the passion for something beyond themselves, beyond their own family. The burden really extends to you this morning, the Harvest Church family. Don't coast through life without passion. Jesus says, here's the choice that you make. If you want to have life, the abundant life, then you give, it, then give up your life. If you're just all about protecting it and saving it, then you will lose it. So genuine discipleship allows for no negotiation. It's nothing less than a complete exchange of all that we have for all that he is. Number two, once you have spent your life and it's over, you can't ever buy it back. You never get a second go around. You don't get those swings again. And number three, I think this text tells us, verse 38, that there is a day when each one of us will be held accountable for the way that we invest our lives. I just want you to know this morning that there is a day when each one of us will stand before God and we will be held accountable. My desire this morning is to come alongside you and do everything that I can, everything that I can, in some ways to warn you. I'm not, um, I'm not intimidated by the warn word. I want to warn you lovingly and, and passionately, passionately that there will be some, some even in this room, that will stand before God and you may even remember this day. And you will stand before God and He's going to ask you to give an account of your life. What did you do with the gifts and the talents that, I've, that I bestowed on you? You'll stand before God in this time and in this day, and you'll have to answer. But more significantly than even a warning, I, I want to come along beside you, and I want to tell you that if you will lose your life for the gospel, you will find it. You will save it, and it'll be worth it. And I want to tell you to give it up. Give it up. Give up your life. Surrender it for the gospel.
Today is Mother's Day. I know that I have not preached a Mother's Day message. I debated through the kind of special circumstances that's going on today and determined that I want to just tell you a little bit more of my heart about discipleship and about what God's asking of us. But I want to tell you one thing about mothers. My, uh, my mom uh, passed away a few years ago, um, 17, 18 years ago. My mom was an incredible lady and uh, gifted in, in many, many ways. Uh, in my mind, the, you know, she was the greatest mom ever. And uh, she loved God. She had a great heart for people. My mom uh, had many people that thought she was, in fact, knew that she was just their best friend. My mom had many, many best friends. Her ability to listen and care for people. And so in, in some ways, in small ways, I want to honor her uh, this morning on this Mother's Day and before you. Um, I was thinking about this one thing, and I think this applies to what we're talking about here this morning. I'm not a coffee drinker, uh, but my mom was. In fact, um, some of the pastors told me that may disqualify me for ministry here at Harvest. <laughs> so I, I'm not a coffee drinker, but my mom was. And um, I remember as a kid, I, I love the smell of coffee. I, I, uh, I grew up you know, around it. I just, I've really had just a few cups of coffee in my life. I'm so sorry for some of you. But uh, I remember as a kid, our family, you know, every once in a while would, um, or when we'd go out to eat, let's say for breakfast or lunch, we didn't have a lot of money, we didn't go out a lot. But when we did, um, mom would always order coffee. And uh, when she'd order coffee, you know, the, the waitress or the waiter would bring the coffee cup by, put it on the table, and we'd order, and, uh, and then we'd have our meal, and, and sometime in the course of that meal, the the service staff would come back with a pot of coffee and they'd come back and they'd always ask this question. They'd say, can I warm up your cup? And mom would always say yes. I don't know if they still say that in this way now. It's different, but that's what they'd say. Can I warm up your cup? And mom would always say yes. And it wasn't necessarily that the coffee that she had received at the beginning was cold. It was hot when it came to the table. And it wasn't even for sure that she had drank a lot of that cup by that time in the, uh, of the meal. But mom knew that a cup of coffee left to itself sitting on a table over time had the tendency to grow lukewarm. And so whenever the waitress or the waiter would come back with that pot of hot steaming coffee and ask her, can I warm up your cup? Mom would always say yes. You know, I think that many times our spiritual lives are like that. It's not that our, our spiritual life, our cup, was not full and warm at some point. I mean, it was. We'd, we've made decisions and we've follow, followed after God and we've pursued discipleship in our life. And so there have been these times when our spiritual cup was full and hot and alive and vibrant. But I would tell you in my own life, and I think in many of the people that I've talked to, that our spiritual lives, just like that cup of coffee, if they're left unattended, if they're left to just sit a little while on the table, 
by themselves, they have a tendency to grow cool. And so it's important that from time to time that, the, that we come back and I think maybe God even says to us, can I, can I warm up your cup? Can I ignite you again? Can I revive you again in the spiritual fervency that I want and desire for your life? And I, my guess is in a, in, a, in a room this size, I'm guessing there's people that know exactly what I'm talking about. And you're sitting there this morning and say, man, Pastor Gary, that's me. I mean, there was a time in my life, you're talking about discipleship and you're talking about submission and, and there have been times in my life and my past when, when I was on, I was all in, fully surrendered. But if I'm honest that with you and with God this morning as I sit here, that my life has, has cooled down, my spiritual fervency has cooled down. And it may be this morning, it's as if God is standing before you, peering into your soul, and he's saying, I want so much more for you than this. My desire is that you would have life and that you'd have abundant life. And maybe even in this hour, in this time, he's saying to you, can I fill up your cup? Can you come back? Can you say again, Lord, I surrender? Maybe this morning you, need, you say, man, I've said that yes, but I need to say some of these ahas again. God's been asking me for some things in my life, and for whatever reason, I don't know what it is. You've said, I, I just haven't been willing, but I know this morning I've got to say yes. I've got to say uh-huh to God. Perhaps this morning God's speaking to you in that way. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to close our service. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I, I want to just ask you a couple questions before we come and close the service with some singing. Can I ask you a couple of, of sort of personal evaluation questions? I, I would call them spiritual inventory. I think anytime God's word is open, we are required to take personal spiritual inventory of what God has said and how that's applied to my life. I wonder if there might be some this morning that would say, you know, Pastor Gary, I've been negotiating with God and I know it. And it's time for me to put God in complete control of my life. And God's talking to me this morning. If that's you this morning, I'm going to ask you, if you just lift up your hand and put it down, I'm not going to embarrass you anyway, but you say, you know what, Pastor Gary, I've been negotiating with God and it's time for me to put God back in his place in my life. Thank you. Just lift up your hand. Amen. I'll give you another minute. Just lift up your hand. That's what I've been doing. I've been negotiating with God. Amen. I wonder if there might be some that would say, you know, I've been wasting my life, and I don't want to waste it anymore. I've taken some of the swings of life, and, and uh, I know that I've got limited swings, and I, I don't want to keep wasting these things. Pastor Gary, would you pray for me about this? Would you just lift up your hand about that? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for your honesty and your transparency here this morning. I wonder if there might be some, it's the last question, and I'm going to pray. I wonder if there might be someone that would say, you know, I've said that big yes, but for whatever reason, I've stopped saying some of the uh-huhs. 
And this morning, I know that I need to say yes. I need to say uh-huh to God and some things that he's asking me. Would you just lift your hand and ask me to pray for you about that? Amen. Amen. Father, you've used your word in ways to touch people's hearts. and They're here listening to you. They've responded with courage to say, you've talked with me, and I want to, I want to respond. Lord, I pray that these raised hands would be symbols of submitted hearts. Hearts that would say, okay, God, whatever you're asking me, I will do. I will pursue you. I will pursue discipleship. I will obey. I will stop negotiating. Lord, I pray that you'd use this time in some life this morning that would change their future for the glory of God, for your work, for your mission. In Jesus' name we pray.